there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Gacy was found guilty of 33 charges of murder by a jury in Chicago. On a Friday night, much of America was shocked to their core when J.R. was shot on Dallas. And in Washington State, people scrambled for cover when Mount St. Helens went active for the first time in 123 years. What would you do, Harry, if, if, uh, if Mount St. Helens erupts uh, sometime soon? Oh, I'd stay right here and watch it. Tell you, you? No, it's too far away from me. Couldn't hurt me. Hell, it's a mile to here, and that's all heavily timbered in here. Amidst this madness, here's what you could see in theaters in March of 1980. But a little bit of business first. I'm Drew McWeenie. Uh, welcome to 80s All Over. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. Scott, what's up, man? Why do we always got to start the show with mistakes? Could we do mistakes at the end? No, no, no. We get them <laughs> out of the way, and that way... I know you're hoping people will just turn it off after the movies, but no, no, let's just oh, no. our mistakes. As much as we want it to just be a conversational, laid-back podcast, we also do want chronological veracity. The first couple of episodes, we've got January and February available already. Obviously, this is the March episode. There are a few things that were wrong with the first couple of episodes. So you're going to hear movies that we already talked about pop up in the release schedule as we go through the rest of 1980. Uh, we're also going to go back this week and talk about a couple of movies that we've missed that already came out by this point in 1980. Part of the reason for this is because release dates were a little bit wonky back then. It's not like now where everything comes out all at one time. So everything's on like 2,800 screens or 3,300 screens. And if you want to go see The Shallows, you can go see it the same weekend as somebody else anywhere else in the country. And everybody can have that conversation roughly at the same time. Obviously, little independent films are still more limited and platformed and things like that. But mainstream stuff used to do that. Mainstream stuff would have like 120 prints in circulation and they would just move around the country. So you would get it at a totally different time than somebody that was in a different state, maybe. We would see on Siskel and Ebert, you'd see like, you know, some new horror movie. And I'd run to the paper and be like, no, I knew this movie wasn't opening here. And then sure enough, two or three weeks later, there it was. Uh, so a lot of wide releases, they would open in 10 or 15 or uh, 80 theaters and then expand if they made money into two to 300 theaters. What Drew's trying to say, it takes a lot of um, legwork to dig up the actual 100% accurate original release date. And we've made some mistakes. Damn it. So we're trying to go by the first theatrical screening in America. Obviously, there are movies that came out elsewhere in the world that only took their time getting here. There's a lot of 1980 titles that took until 1982, 1983 for them to come to America. We'll talk about them in the months where they finally reached America. A couple of quick titles that we missed and didn't get to talk about before this. One is one of the two big Guyana movies that came out in the wake of the Jim Jones, Jamestown cult mass suicide situation that happened in the late 70s. Guyana. Cult of the Damned, the movie that dares to tell the truth behind the most shocking crime of the century. We will give the world a moment to remember a true revolution. When something that horrific happens in real life, uh, it seems like mainstream filmmakers take a little while and give it a little little time. Uh, but the indie or the exploitation filmmakers will jump on something, a hot topical story as quickly as possible and the result generally is something distasteful it's an interesting film it's not a very good film yeah and it's it's funny because i remember the powers booth tv one which was yes. a little bit later than this and that was the big one that was the yeah. one that i thought they took their time and they tried to get that somewhat right and tried to do it a little classier this is no joke the skeevy super quick let's get this thing in theaters version and it's it's really i thought i thought it was really gross 
It is. Let's move on. Yeah. That was a January release, uh, Guyana yep. Cult of the Dam. The rest of these were all out in February. Uh, and of these, I think the most interesting is The Ninth Configuration, written and directed yep. by William Peter Blady. Do you know how long it would take for just one of these protein molecules to appear entirely by chance? 10 to the 243rd power billions of years. And I find that far, far more fantastic than simply believing in a god. I like this movie. It's a mess, and it's a movie that came out, and there were a lot of different titles for it. Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane was one of the titles. Um, Ninth Configuration was one of the titles. It was a movie I don't think anybody knew what to do with, and they tried to sell it based on, of course, The Exorcist, and it could not be more different from The Exorcist. It's not a horror movie. No. <laughs> I like it. I think it's solid. The thing that I like about it is it's one of those ensemble casts that, especially in the 80s, where it was a lot of stage guys and it was a lot of guys who had come from a certain kind of film. I love Stacey Keach at this point in his career when he was still kind of young and weird and very crazy and really felt dangerous in films. As most people know, William Peter Blatty is the author of The Exorcist and is a fantastic writer. He's not so fluid a director. It's an interesting premise here about kind of a premise almost like Shutter Island in a way. Uh, if you're a fan of um, character actors and, and going, oh my God, look, it's blank. You shouldn't even ruin the fun for you, but it has like five or six of those actors where uh, they just pop up and you're like, oh my God, Robert Loja. Tom Atkins, for God's sake. Richard Lynch. These are guys who we're going to talk about over and over in the 80s because of the movies they did and because of how busy they were and how much they worked. And... Some of them have survived. Some of them, really, this was their heyday. I think, you know, Tom Atkins is a guy, I would crown him the one of the kings of the 80s just because he worked nonstop, it felt like. And uh, Jason Miller, for those of you that are Exorcist fans, it's one of the other really interesting Jason Miller performances. And he didn't give many. That's, that's what is kind of crazy about his career, is he wasn't an actor who had done a million things before The Exorcist. And he didn't do a million things after. He basically had a very short period of time that he worked. What's interesting, I guess, about Ninth Configuration is that it came in on the tail end of the, is somebody monkeying with our soldiers? You know, there's like yeah. the boys from Brazil and there's Marathon Man. There's there's these um, paranoid thrillers that imply that there's cover-ups in the military and we've done terrible things to these soldiers. It's very stagey. One of the things you said about him not being a terribly fluid director, he's not bad with his cast, but he doesn't know how to shoot it. So it feels very stage-bound. And that is certainly a problem with the film because... It has ambitions, and I don't think he always nails what he's trying to do visually. Glad he only directed one other feature, and it is the highly underrated Exorcist 3. I think the Exorcist 3 actually is is pretty solid. And really, it scared the shit out of me in theaters. It's a really uncomfortable film in a lot of ways. Yeah. It has one phenomenal scare, and, and it's a pretty decent movie overall. Um, this next one, it's there's a million of these movies that we seem to be covering, and it was definitely a running theme at this point in the 80s which is the notion that marriage was ending. The institution of marriage was crumbling and people were swinging and new freedoms existed. So what did marriage even mean anymore? We've got one coming up this week. And in February of 1980, we missed the last married couple in America. I still can't figure it. What happened, Marv? I don't know. Everything's so confused. You know what I mean? Police strikes and, and, and women's live in condominiums. Uh, what has that got to do with your marriage? Huh? I don't know. Something. It's George Siegel and Natalie Wood and Richard Benjamin and Valerie Harper. Just from that cast. And it's Gil Cates, uh, who was the president of the Academy for years and years. And it's, it's a very old-fashioned Hollywood sort of take on things. It is not, I don't think, a, a very 70s film. It doesn't feel like a Mazursky movie or something that's kind of trying to really put its finger on the pole. It's pretty down the middle, pretty mainstream, pretty broad comedy. It's fun to look back over a certain era and see what was important or what was culturally significant at the time. And when yeah. you're talking about 80, it's like you have all these broad comedies about the disillusionment of married couples in suburbia. You look at it now and you're like, it's kind of quaint. That was your biggest concern that you've now conformed to living in suburbia in a nice, safe, comfy home. It's a shame. Uh, and then finally, uh, rounding February out is something that we're going to talk about repeatedly over the course of the 80s. And it kind of goes away mid-80s. 
and it is the reissue. It's when films would come back out and get a major re-release in theaters, and they didn't just dump them on a couple of screens. They would do the whole campaign again. They would run the posters again, and it was a big deal. Pre-video, this was a pretty healthy market. If you had a hit three years ago, and VHS was just on the cusp of being big, you know, Star Wars, in its first four years, it was re-released three times. Disney was a master at it throughout the 70s and the 80s. And I'm grateful because I saw Young Frankenstein in theaters. And for years, it drove me crazy until I did some research and I realized, oh, it got a re-release in 78. Well, Jaws was a re-release for me, and so was American Graffiti. I was a little too young to see them the first time, but I saw them both theatrically because I saw them on reissues. It's appropriate that um, our one that came out in February was... After the sensational return of Jaws to the screen... What could possibly be more terrifying than Jaws 2? The terror continues. It's a pretty bad film. Uh, hey, just because you found a way to sneak Jaws 2 into a podcast about the 80s, that doesn't mean you should talk smack, okay? <laughs> I'm, a, I'm allowed to take a shot. I mean, come on. All right, well, to me, Jaws 2, and I, I did see this re-release with my sister. I remember as clear as day. And uh, I'm almost positive it was with a double feature of The Fog. The worst thing about Jaws 2 is that it comes on the heels an absolute classic. But if you put aside how it doesn't even cast a shadow on the amazingness of Jaws, it's still a pretty fun movie. It doesn't have the heart or the character or the tone or the right color. It moves. It's like basically a slasher movie at sea. Well, it begins the big mistake of the franchise. And it's the bizarre inclination to focus everything on the family of Chief Brody. The idea that the Brody family comes back for Jaws 3 and most hilariously Jaws 4 when a shark follows them to the Bahamas. It's madness to me that the Brodies remain the focus where you could simply have done other movies about giant sharks. It's yeah. the, the same problem that Halloween had where they got hooked on this weird continuity instead of playing with the freedom of the idea that they originally had. I don't I don't blame Jaws 2 because they still had Scheider under contract and you want the big star of the first one to come back at you know and Richard Dreyfus didn't so at least they got Roy Scheider but sure. I totally agree that once they got to part 3 just stick to the shark. <laughs> uh, so those were the ones we missed and then for this month for March of 1980 the ones that we've already covered were The Changeling, the George C. Scott ghost uh, story. The Black Marble, which is the Joseph Wambach cop comedy that we did, a weird comedy that we did in the first episode, and Steve McQueen's Tom Horn. So we've already covered those movies. That means that we can just jump right in now and begin the actual episode. Oh, I thought the we were done. Guy, uh, I'll talk to you next time. That's, no, uh, no, of course not. We've got all the, the real work to do now, and we get to start with a movie that was... I guess the, the right way to put it would be a big fucking deal to me. We're allowed to curse in this podcast? Sure. We've got a parental warning on iTunes. You can, you can say what you want. I don't, I don't like profanity very fucking much. Okay. Well, I will, I will keep that in mind. <laughs> but this movie had two stars that I really liked, and one in particular who, as I've said, we're going to chart every one of my hopeless, terrifying crushes in the 80s uh, by doing this podcast, but Tatum O'Neill was a big deal to me. And I thought she was funny as funny could be and adorable. And Little Darlings, co-starring Christy McNichol, was um, fairly irresistible for 10-year-old Drew. I'll bet my residual check. What? Residual check? That Paris will become a woman by the end of the summer. How much? $100. What do I have to do? Just let nature take its course. Angel versus Ferris. Whoever loses her virginity first wins. I always say that kids are aspirational. They don't want to see movies about kids their age. They want to see movies about kids who are about four or five years older than them so they can see what's about to happen. That's definitely what Little Darlings was. I was 10 years old. This was about two girls who make a bet as to who's going to lose their virginity first at summer camp. This was the first year I was attending a summer camp. There, Really, there's no way to, to convey just how lightning rod interesting this movie was to me at age 10. I was, again, two, I'm two years younger than you. I was more into the pirate movie, Christy McNichol, than Little Darlings, Christy McNichol. Yeah, I was starting to have feelings, man. Yeah, um, uh, Little Darlings feels like somebody saw Meatballs 
and said, let's make this really smutty. It is interesting in that there are not many teen camp comedies that are female-driven. Yes, Most of them are dude movies. Most of them are movies about, you know, the panty raids and, and the guys are the ones who the focus is on and the girls are peripheral and their props and things like that. This definitely aims a little bit higher than something like a Meatballs. Some could say lower. No, I, I don't think so. I think the second half of the film, when you watch the second half of the movie, it's more like Fast Times at Ridgemont High, where once they start to actually deal with the reality of losing the virginity versus the idea of losing it, the movie isn't a joke, and it's not played as just ridiculous. And look, I love Meatballs, but Meatballs is goofy. Meatballs is a very silly movie all the way through, and that's all they cared about. That's fine. That's exactly what they meant to make. There's a moment where it shifts and it becomes something else. They try to talk about the consequences of sex and the choice to have sex and and really the weight of it on these two girls. So it does feel like they're aiming for something a little bit higher and a little bit more intensely felt than something like that. I would have to give the film another shot because when I saw it, I just remember thinking that it was just raunchy and then kind of tacked on emotion at the end. Uh, I do know a lot of girls, women that I've grown up with, this is a cult favorite among women of our generation. It definitely yeah. is. A lot of women I know remember Little Darlings. I hear it talked about the same way that I hear something like The Last American Virgin talked about, where there yeah. are people who, because of their own experience, they absolutely, there's some sort of bond they have to it. And that, yeah. that to me, that's the real hook of nostalgia, is when you have some personal reason that this thing sits deeper for you. Oh, yeah. I mean, I could... Uh, for years when I, I loved meatballs because I wanted to have like an older mentor like Bill Murray. I didn't have that. You know, I had a big sister and my dad was always working and I was like, oh, it'd be fun to have a big brother type like Bill Murray. Uh, so I related to meatballs big time and I could see young girls to 12 to 15, whatever, seeing little darlings at that age and just having it stick. Now, I have a question. Have you ever seen the TV cut of Little Darlings? Uh, no. How do you think they handled it? You couldn't on TV in the 80s say... They were going to lose their virginity. You just couldn't. Oh, they, they were going to kiss a boy. It was falling in love. They literally shot a different version of the film. What TV versions did to movies of the 1980s could be an entirely separate podcast on its own. Oh, yeah. <laughs> little, little info for our younger viewers who might not know this. When they were going to play a film on network television, they had to fill a slot that had commercials. And, and sometimes the movie was long enough, they had to fill two slots over two nights. They would go back to the deleted scenes and they would plug in one or two or three to patch up the eight to 10 slot so they could fill the whole movie. And so that's why movies like Halloween and, and 1941 and dozens of movies got TV versions that have deleted scenes that we've never seen before or until DVD came to be. Right. And in some cases, it was things that they had to cover for, like this one, where the entire theme of the movie, the entire point of the movie had to be changed. And it is pretty radically different. There are lots of uh, decent, raunchy teen comedies that have a little thread of humanity in them. You see them now, and they come out, and they're like stuff like um, like a Mean Girls or, or something that has a little substance instead of just being fluffy. And I, I think Little Darlings would appeal to younger women who uh, are looking for something that shows that it's not that strange for girls to be as raunchy as boys. It, it, it works. Okay, well, our next film, uh, I think we can keep this really short and sweet because there's not really too many ways to describe a comedy concert. Uh, it's called Gilda Live, and this is, of course, the biggest and best showcase of the comedic talents of Gilda Radner. It's a concert film, and it also has uh, her doing some sketches, and she's just wonderful. It's such a fun, ebullient, colorful, energetic Lovely woman. I've always been a Gilda Radner fan. It broke my heart when she passed away. And unfortunately, we just lost her uh, former husband, Gene Wilder, this last week. But if you want to see a great comedian, because this was the decade in which, you know, George Carlin got dozens of concerts and Eddie Murphy and so many people got concert movies uh, and stand up became so prevalent. It's great to have this testament to how amazing she was. And I highly recommend Gilda Live. Directed by Mike Nichols. A very strange choice because I, I know that he had a you know strong theatrical background, but his film work was so radically different than his stage work. Doesn't feel like Mike Nichols really put any signature on this. So quick story about this, and this, this is one of those defining moments for uh, somebody in terms of uh, SNL because I'm fascinated by the history of Saturday Night Live movies and the way people made the jump from the TV show to the big screen 
there's never been a bigger talent pool and we never had more people come out of one thing on television into feature films ever. And we never will. Saturday Night Live is gigantic. When Gilda was getting ready for this, it was the same time that Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi were talking about making a movie out of the Blues Brothers. The intersection of the Venn diagram of those two things was, of course, Paul Schaefer, who was the musical director at SNL at the time. There was a real pissing match back and forth between Gilda and John and Dan about who got Paul Schaefer because she wanted him to handle everything for the live show to help her get ready for it, to help her design how that was all going to work. And they wanted him to be not only in the movie, the blues brothers is one of the guys in the band, but the musical director for the film. And in the end it was Gilda the one she, she managed to convince Paul to come work on her thing. And it led to the infamous quote that John Belushi once made, which was Paul Schaefer is no blues brother. He was there at the birth of it, but that was the moment where he lost John and Dan forever because they were so butthurt about the entire thing and what went down. Our next film is something that Drew knows a lot about. I did not dig it up until I was older because as a child, I would have had no interest in a adult themed biopic about a country singer. She was married at 13. She had four kids by the time she was 20. She's been hungry and poor. She's been loved and cheated on. She became a singer because it was the only thing she could do. She became a star because it was the only way she could do it. If this gonna break us up, I'll quit. Successful people don't quit, baby. Sissy Spacek, Tommy Lee Jones, Coal Miner's Daughter, rated PG. Now playing at a theater near you. I was not personally the prime target for this, but... My dad is a huge country music fan. So Coal Miner's Daughter was an absolute must for us in the theater. Sure enough, we went. It was his birthday weekend movie. Coal Miner's Daughter is one of those movies that uh, Walk Hard is making fun of so vigorously. It is definitely a down-the-middle, studio, Oscar-hungry biopic. And what's interesting, Drew, is that, you know, you see stuff like uh, Walk the Line and Ray and even Straight Outta Compton. They're all good films. They're all well written and well acted, but they're all they all kind of follow the same template. And you can even go back to like The Rose in 79 and Coal Miner's Daughter in 1980. And they're even then they were following this very standard but well polished and well made template. Of the biopic. Oh, dude, you go back to the Tommy Dorsey story, or you go back to the Al Jolson story, and this was already in place. It's ridiculous the whiskers this thing had on it by the time they did it in 1980, but what made it an Oscar contender was the performances. And it is crazy, because the beginning of the movie, Sissy Spacek is playing a 13 or 14-year-old in the film, and she's clearly mid-20s at the beginning of this movie. It's... it's, a little silly as the choice goes. And the same thing with Tommy Lee Jones, who plays Doolittle Lynn, who uh, eventually married her and was a huge part of her life and career and a horrifying drunk and a wife beater. And that's a lot of the rocky second half of this movie is her singing. She has a hit. He bounces her off some walls. Oh, we're very sorry. And then she has another hit and then they make up again. And it's absolutely formula. But Tommy Lee Jones and Sissy Spacek are both young and yep. hungry and absolutely on fire playing the material. The musical sequences are actually quite good. Levon Helm a- has a major role in the film, and, and I mean, you know, you can't ask for more authentic than that. And the, the music, it feels like they celebrate the music in a very real way. Yep. It wasn't something that would have been up my alley when I was a kid, but I'm glad that I dug it up later. The only other thing I would say is that the only other real reason to hunt it down is if you're a Beverly D'Angelo fan, she's awesome as Patsy Cline in this. Uh, obviously, there's a yes. much better Patsy Cline film that Jessica Lange stars in called Sweet Dreams. But if you're just looking for a kick-ass Beverly D'Angelo performance, she really does every moment she's on screen in this kind of steal everything that's going on. And from there, we're going to switch gears to a, <laughs> a really obscure. I don't even know if it played opened in Philly. Uh, we always do this long tease before we mention the title, but I'll just say the title and then I'll give you some some background on this film. It's called Death Ship. In the last 10 years, over 80 modern ships have disappeared without a trace. The Death Ship is one of them. What is the terrifying secret of the Death Ship? Death Ship. Death ship. A bunch of people who are stranded in the middle of the ocean after there is um, a horrible accident uh, on their 
luxury liner, and they have to abandon ship. And out of nowhere arrives this giant warship that looks like a completely filthy, rusty tetanus bucket. But they have no choice, so they climb on the boat, uh, or I should say ship. And it turns out, of course, that it is <laughs> it, uh, it used to be used as a prison ship for the Nazis. And it's haunted by the spirits of the dead Nazis. And it has Richard Crenna and George Kennedy. And it's crazy gory and it's uh, all gross. And I saw it because my grandmother recorded it on a VHS tape for me. Did she really? Yeah, my mom's mom, God bless her, was a huge action and horror fan. She would go to bed at 10 o'clock or whatever, and she would put on HBO turn the TV off and hit record. So, you know, every once in a while, I would have a VHS tape full of, like, Death Ship and the Boogans and Friday 2. And that's, that's hilarious. This is an infamous video, Nasty. This got pulled from the UK because it got an X. It's a notorious title in some ways. It always just cracked me up as a kid when I finally saw it because I was so used to George Kennedy. I think he had done three or four of the, uh, the airport movies and had done them back to back to back to back. So that's what he was. He was the captain. And those are super mainstream, almost made for TV feeling movies. And then you turn around and you see him here. And this thing is wall to wall gore. It is crazy gory. George Kennedy plays the, uh, the captain who, who becomes possessed by the evil spirits and goes a little crazy. It's just grungy and, and rusty and ugly. And this production design on the ship is amazing. That's what I'm saying. It's effective. It's creeped the hell out of me as a kid. And if you like horror flicks, uh, I know it's dated and probably corny nowadays, but it also has a certain something. It has like a certain vibe to it that I still think is eerie. This next one is, uh, this is another movie I saw because of my dad. I really enjoyed the difference between my two parents in terms of what they would take me to see when I was a kid and what they would go see and what they were interested in. My dad was not above just sitting something out if he had no interest in it. And my mom was the same way. So the two of them would frequently not want to see the same movies. And I was the winner of that scenario because it meant that they would go to the theater separately and neither of them really liked going alone. So pretty much as soon as I was old enough to handle things, it was the excuse was, well, all right, I want someone to go with me. So Drew will go. And dude, I worked that as hard as I possibly could to see things. Now all right, but for this film uh, that we're about to cover, which is a James Conn film called Hide in Plain yeah. Sight, I'm curious to know how you as a 10-year-old took to this movie. My name is Hackman, Thomas Hackman Jr. On a Saturday in June 1967, I went to my ex-wife's house to pick up the kids. When I got there, the kids were gone, taken by agents of the United States Justice Department. Why were they taken? Why are they watching me? Why won't anybody help it was your kids how do you suppose you'd feel james con in hide in plain sight rated pg this is one that i didn't get at all i james con all he was was a, a dude who yelled it wasn't like steve mcqueen where with tom horn when i went and saw that i kind of enjoyed the experience because my dad had already introduced me to westerns and i had a real feel for certain ones that i had seen and loved and the conversations afterwards about those movies i think were really good conversations this uh, one, the, I had a million questions, but uh, for, for those who haven't seen it, it's about a divorced father who tries to go see his kids to pick them up for his visitation time, and his wife and kids have just disappeared. He has no idea how to proceed. Cops can't help him. Nobody seems to know what happened, and he begins to unravel that they've entered the uh, witness relocation program. The movie is about him just trying to figure out where his kids, how can I get them and it's based on a true story, evidently. It's it's one of those films that I've gone back and I've seen since because I was curious to see James Caan as a director, not just as an actor. I believe it's the only film he directed, isn't it? It is. And yeah. it's very modest. The, the visual ambitions of it are pretty modest. It's just it's a very different James Caan that you see in this film because he's, you know, Sonny from The Godfather. And that's clearly how we viewed him was the hothead. And uh, anytime you saw jokes about James Caan, it was about him beating somebody with a garbage can and, and either that or the Playboy Mansion guy who slept with every playmate for five and a half straight years. Like it was that version of him. What's interesting in this is watching how he directs the scenes with the kids. And there is a there's a warmth to it. And there's a real sense of of him connecting to the young actors that it's a little different than any other James Conn from that era. I think that it's an interesting man's perspective a certain type of man's perspective on the what was the prevalent issue of the day, which was divorce. You try to take this as kind of 
James Kahn's version of Kramer versus Kramer. Not just can we get along now that we've divorced? How will we handle our children now that we've divorced? His version of the divorce theory is what if my family literally vanishes because into <laughs> witness relocation? Oh my God, that could happen. It's weird because it got really heavily criticized at the time uh, for sticking too closely to the true story. Um, and not a lot happens in the movie. It's a fairly inactive film considering you're dealing with guys who are hiding from the mob and supposedly living in uh, witness relocation. I think if Hollywood had done their typical job on this movie, it would be more of a giant action thriller, more like a witness than it is. And the movie's a little more low-key than that. Yeah, it's not an action film. It's a drama. James Caan trying to show that he can also play a warm father. And even though it's in a paranoia thriller, he's really good in the movie. It's not a great movie, but he's great in it. And when is James Caan not fucking great? Uh, not often. Never, yeah. Drew. Get off my okay. podcast. <laughs> okay, okay. So quick, warm and fuzzy James Conn story. I took the boys to uh, my, my son's Toshi and Alan. I took them with me to a junket that I had to do one time. And it was for the Adam Sandler, Andy Samberg film, That's My Boy. You took your boys to a junket for a film you'd never let them watch. Oh, yeah. I just had them on, <laughs> I just had them on a Saturday, and they went with me. And okay. So, so we walk into the room, and Adam gets up, and he does, like, five minutes of shtick, and he's literally doing shtick for the kids. Oh, and a poo-poo, and a ba-ba, and he's doing the Sandler voices and stuff, and Sandberg's laughing. And my boys have done a million junkets, so they know the rule is you go into the little room next to the interview room, and you sit quietly in there, and you don't make any noise because the cameras are rolling. And they've never done badly with that, ever. Except this one time where the entire time I was in there talking to Sandler and Sandberg, I hear laughing, I hear noises, I hear fart sounds. I'm like, what the hell is going on in that room? So I get up to the end of the interview and I'm livid because I feel like they've ruined the whole interview. I walk into the room to read them the riot act and James Kahn is sitting there because he plays Sandler's father in the film and he's sitting in there egging them on. It was him doing it. And he was looking at me like, what are you going to do? And he had seen how agitated I was getting. It was James Conn fucking with me by making the kids laugh. Such a badass. How can you not love? I, 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 he should have been a bigger star, but then he wouldn't have been one of the best character actors ever. He's one of those few guys, like most actors, they're either movie stars or they're character actors. Very few can switch between the two. James Kahn switched between the two, and he was always good. He just never seemed to bother him that, oh, I'm going to play fifth build in this movie. You know, he's just an actor. Love the guy. Love the guy. All right. Our next movie stars another guy that, if you grew up in this era, you couldn't help but love. Even if the movie he was in wasn't all that great because the man worked a lot and he wasn't, uh, didn't always choose winners, but Walter Matthau, without question, one of the most endearing a lovable, engaging movie stars in the world, even when he was in Midland films like Little Miss Marker. Based on a Damon Runyon short story, it is the third or fourth version of the story, and it is about a little girl who is left as a gambler's marker uh, with a gruff bookie, and then the little girl's father loses the bet and kills himself. <laughs> And then he doesn't know what to do with the little girl. I, I have to believe this film was greenlit because of the impending adaptation of Annie, right? Annie was gigantic on Broadway. It was a force to be reckoned with. And that album sold 50 bazillion copies. And no doubt they, they thought that they were tapping into that. They had uh, Julie Andrews, who is certainly, for this kind of family market, for that kind of movie, about as good a first choices you could have had to be opposite Walter Matthau. The weirdest part of this is that Tony Curtis, who actually played the Walter Matthau role in one of the earlier versions of this movie. I saw it as a kid, didn't think much of it. I think it popped up on stars when I was in my 20s and thought, oh, I love Walter Matthau. I'll watch some of this. And it's very, very disposable. But the production design, the 30s period design is pretty neat. And the little girl is adorable. It moves along okay. It's not too sappy. I mean, it's PG. It's made for older kids and their parents. It's not made for little, little kids. It's basically a vehicle for Walter Matthau being uh, reluctantly sweet. And in that regard, it's it's an entertaining movie. But you nobody would rank Little Miss Marker among his best movies. Our, our next film 
Uh, this is one that I, I had to track down and see through nefarious gray legal means. Like, it's it's one of these movies. But it's a film that I was fascinated by because I, I was hoping that this would be this lost masterpiece. I, the reason for that is because it was directed by Alejandro Jodorowsky, who is the director of El Topo and Santa Sangre and especially The Holy Mountain. Uh, one of my very favorite filmmakers a madman, a lunatic, a visionary. And when you see Tusk... Tusk. Tusk. Oui, Tusk. C'est l'amour. Tusk, un film d'Alexandro Jodorowsky. Tusk feels like a movie that he made hoping that it would be a broader audience. It's basically a, a kid movie, but it's his version of a kid's movie young English girl and an Indian elephant born on the same day and how their lives intertwine. It's certainly not his best work. It's not terrible, but it's one of those movies that just kind of vanished. And I think a lot of his work was were, was produced by people who didn't always have their money lined up the right way. And uh, certainly his early films vanished for years and years and years and were not available commercially at all. This one, I believe, is still out of circulation. His other try to, to break through to the mainstream came a decade later with The Rainbow Thief. And, you know, I feel like this is a guy that, that really shouldn't worry about that. He's at his very best when he's following his own thing and not really leaning into the mainstream at all. Would you recommend that uh, Jodorowsky junkies try and dig this one up? Or would you say it's not even worth the effort? If you are truly a big fan of his work, if he's somebody whose work is important to you and you've seen the other stuff and you're curious i would say it's worth a peek but i would warn you ahead of time it's not him in the same way that the greater films are okay now our next film is something that i knew vaguely and then drew sent me access to see it let's just put it that way it is one of the most awkwardly bizarre romantic comedies you'll ever see and i would like drew to explain uh, how you described Nothing Personal, starring Suzanne Summers and Donald Sutherland. I, I said it is a over-earnest, environmentally-themed romantic comedy that makes the near-fatal mistake of starting with footage of baby seals being clubbed to death. They are killing seals out in Dawson Bay. <laughs> what are you laughing at? The man who wrote it, Robert Kaufman, is... For guys like us who were talking about this era, this guy wrote Freebie and the Bean. He wrote Harry and Walter Go to New York, Love at First Bite, and How to Beat the High Cost of Living. This guy was a very prolific comedy screenwriter in the 1980s. This is arguably the worst thing he's ever written. I couldn't make it through 20 minutes of it, frankly. And I hate to say that because I like to give anything a shot. But I will say that it has Dabney Coleman in it. <laughs> um, and and Donald Sutherland, here's the, here's the thing. Donald Sutherland plays a guy who is a, uh, a professor. He sees this footage of these seals being beaten to death and decides he's going to find a lawyer to stop this and yeah. goes looking for an environmental lawyer and ends up with Suzanne Summers, who comes on her first big scene where she makes her pitch for, listen, a woman can be a lawyer too, and I can be an attorney, and I'm a good attorney, and the... A, it tells you right when this movie was being made that, that women's lib was still very much still a hot-button issue. This was her first film after leaving Three's Company, where she'd become a fairly big TV star. And this was supposed to be the film that was going to make her a movie star. And her husband was one of the producers and was also her agent and put this whole package together. She and Donald Sutherland have so little chemistry together uh, yes. that if you told me George Lucas shot the two of them on separate sound stages and married the footage together, I would believe it. Because there's not one moment where they seem to be talking to each other. I, I'm glad that I got to see some of it because I was curious, but... It's got some weird little appearances. Catherine O'Hara, if you're a big Catherine O'Hara fan, and if you're not, what's wrong with you? I noticed Michael Wincott's name is in the credits, and I'm thinking, how old was he? Five? It is truly, and it's another one of these movies where it is sold with a poster, where if you see the poster, yep. it's like a wacky comedy, and they're in bed together, and it's hilarious. That's not the movie at all. And I'm always fascinated by those posters that were such blatant lies about the tone of the film. And didn't you know that 10 minutes in, people were going to be seething because they have been misled utterly as to what to expect? It's a terrible film and justifiably forgotten. 
Our next film is one that I know Drew has a, a fondness for. It's called A Small Circle of Friends. They shared their laughter, their love, and the vision of a generation. Three lives brought together by a moment in history. Karen Allen, Jameson Parker, and Brad Davis, a small circle of friends. You could almost say this is the proto-Big Chill. It's basically a movie looking back at um, the upheaval of the 60s and friends who meet when they arrive at Harvard. The three students are played by Brad Davis, Karen Allen, and Jameson Parker. That's a weird mix of uh, actors there. And don't forget Shelley Long. Well, Shelley Long's in it. Um, It's a very early example of 60s nostalgia starting to kick in. And one of the weirdest things about it is who directed the movie? Uh, (laughs) It is the directorial debut of the man who brought us Dragonheart, Triple X, Stealth. (laughs) Yep, Daylight. It is the uh, directorial debut and arguably the best film ever directed by Rob Cohen. For years, I thought this was a John Sayles screenplay. It's not. It's an Ezra Sachs screenplay. And it's a good film. It is earnest, and it's clearly inspired by, like, you know, the late 70s. There was a lot of, you know, American graffiti and then breaking away. A lot of earnest, sincere movies about coming of age among normal teenagers. I think Small Circle of Friends is a pretty good film. Yeah, and he, you know, he'd already cut his teeth as a producer. He was John Badham's producer and had worked on right. movies like the Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings and Thank God It's Friday and The Wiz. So he had been around the business for a while, and this was his very personal film. And and I do think it kind of predates that whole run of 60s nostalgia that happens throughout the 80s and does so with, you know, a lot of romanticism. And it's clear he has a real fondness for the age of protest. In the age of experimentation, if you are somebody who primarily knows Karen Allen only from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, A, I, I forgive you because it's Raiders of the Lost Ark and that's all you need, but she's really good in this and yep. really adorable in it. And it breaks my heart that Karen Allen wasn't in 500 movies in the 80s because I yeah. think she's she's really amazing sincerely underrated actor. No reason Karen Allen shouldn't have had like a Deborah Winger type run. I think it was just opportunity and she made a lot of really strong appearances and things, but it just didn't happen. So you have to kind of pick and choose. And this is one of those performances that if you haven't seen it and you like her, you really owe it to yourself because she's very, very good here. Our next film is uh, another one that kind of falls into the category of ostensibly wacky suburban white middle-class malaise it's called serial and it's based on a novel called a year in the life of marin county morning there's something crazy going on i don't think it's us for the people of beautiful marin county california love plays a big part in everything they do i think it would do you good to get your oil changed they just love loving it doesn't matter who lady give me a break it's only eight in the morning Uh, And I assume that it is a fairly affluent neighborhood in California where all types of various social issues come to roost with uh, Martin Mull and his family and uh, his immediate neighborhood, including adultery and divorce, swinging, and his daughter joins a a cult. As wonderful as it is to see Martin Mull in a lead role, it's not a very funny film. I've actually read the book. And the book is very, very satirical. And the book is written almost like a Tom Robbins, um, where it's exaggerated and people are made kind of grotesque. And there is a sense that it's overt satire. He is demolishing this Northern California lifestyle and culture. And the movie never figures that tone out. They have no idea how to play it. So it swings between being sitcom-y and being kind of broad and trying to maybe be a little bit serious, but it pushes it way too far to do that. This is a a film that feels very, very um, scattered as you're watching it. Like, they really never got their hands around what they were making. It's a shame that the movie's not better because Martin Mull is quite good in it. Uh, His wife is Tuesday Weld. Uh, It also has Christopher Lee, of all people, Sally Kellerman. Good cast, but it's very random, and it, it feels very episodic. Uh, and I would have really liked to see Martin Mull uh, in, in more leads because he's, he's actually quite good. He has no problem holding the film down on his own. 
it's another one of those things like with uh, with Karen Allen. You just wonder if the material just never quite fell into their hands or if it went through so many other people first that took the cream off the top. So by the time it got to Martin Mull, yeah. there just wasn't that opportunity. If you're um, uh, if you're doing a college thesis on the social mores uh, <laughs> and the concerns of middle class Americans in 1979 and 1980, then you know serial could be one of the crown jewels of your thesis paper. Beyond that, uh, it's just a very odd curiosity, I think. It, it does have a big screen appearance, and he didn't make many, but it has a big screen appearance by the wonderful gifted co-star of the Bob Newhart show, Peter Boners, who when I was yeah. a kid, because of my last name, McQueenie, any guy who had an unfortunate name like mine, Peter Boners was a superhero in my house. He actually works and people aren't chasing him down the street and his name is Peter Boners. That's even worse than mine. Yeah, I, I relied on guys like him. But now yeah. we're going to move on to something that Drew has been excited to talk about since last episode. And I will let him describe it in his own way. When I finally saw this film, I, I had for years thought it was by a totally different filmmaker. I thought this was by Ken Russell for the longest time. I thought it was that run of sort of weird, tripped out biopics that he did. I had seen it when I was young and I saw it because my grandmother wanted to go. She was a big fan of, I believe this was one of my spring break movies that year. Uh, and she wanted to go because she loved ballet, and she knew that there was a lot of ballet in the movie. The film is Nijinsky. Genius. Madman. Animal. God. Nijinsky. I didn't choose Vaslav for Sacre de Printemps because I sleep with him. He was possessed by a man. I don't want to be with you. I can't breathe with you. I can't think. He was loved by a woman. I know you only married me because you thought you lost him. He was acclaimed by the world. Nijinsky. The most interesting thing about this movie to me is that it is such a departure for the well-regarded and very prolific uh, excellent director Herbert Ross, who had just come off uh, California Suite and would in the 80s go on to direct uh, Pennies from Heaven, Steel Magnolias, Footloose, and... Not the kind of guy you would necessarily see doing a sobering drama about homosexuality on the ballet stage. His background is dance. And I'll say this for the film. It is a film that you, sh if you are a dance fan, it's pretty beautifully shot. Uh, the guy who stars in the movie was, at the time, a pretty well-regarded and famous uh, ballet dancer in his own right. George de la Pena is his name. He is still working. He's still... Um, choreographing and he's still uh very active in the dance community and he's a he's a legend he's not a great actor but every single time he has to impress physically and every time it becomes about the dancing the movie does really come to life it's a long movie it's an uneven movie alan bates plays the the guy who is his mentor and his lover and who he has the on again off again relationship with over the course of his whole life and alan bates is good in it but it's a very slow movie in a lot of ways. And it's a pretty wild story and a wild character. So it, it feels like the film is kind of at war with itself as to how it wants to play this material. It's really only alive during the musical sequences. Our next film is something that we can run through pretty quickly because I don't know. Does anybody remember this film? It is called Defiance. Jan Michael Vincent. You think this is what I want this rat trap to live in? Teresa Saldana. They can be able to take your whole stupid life and stick it in that duffel bag of yours. And Academy Award winner, Art Carney. Used to be a nice place to live in. Right here. All of a sudden, it's changed. <laughs> they all lived in fear until he taught them. Defiance. Rated PG. Directed by John Flynn, who would go on to direct, I know, Raw Deal, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. It was also an early production by Jerry Bruckheimer. It stars Jan Michael Vincent and Drew, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like they were just kind of going for the Death Wish retread here. It's 100% a Death Wish ripoff. And yeah. Jan Michael Vincent, about as low rent an actor as, as you can get, even at this point, the which was the height of his era of being castable, this feels like to me an East Coast movie. You know, you look at movies at the at the time, and you can tell when they were pulling from one talent pool or the other talent pool. There were West Coast movies where you saw the same comedy actors and the same dramatic actors over and over. There were a lot of New York movies that felt like New York movies, and this is one of them. 
It's got young Teresa Saldana. It's got Danny Aiello. It's got Art Carney in it. It's a skanky little movie. It's weird it's because I think of Art Carney as a class act. And Art Carney right. being in this really throws me. You know, everybody has to pay the bills. And you don't always sure. know that a movie's going to look at look so sleazy when you're making it. Jan Michael Vincent plays a sailor who is out of work, holds up in a flop house, and realizes that there's gangs and thugs and hooligans all over the place. And he's going to clean up the town. Gosh darn it. The real shame of it is it comes right after, I, I think, a pretty darn good movie by this director, uh, Rolling Thunder. Oh, hell and, yes. And the idea that Defiance was his follow-up, and the outfit came before Rolling Thunder, and I think the outfit's pretty good. There's a, a dramatic drop-off, and I think it might be as simple as you had Paul Schrader writing the script for Rolling Thunder, and you had a really good piece of pulp that he could dig into, and the outfit's the same way. I just don't think there's anything here that right. you hadn't already seen by this point. Right, plus uh, Rolling Thunder has a novel's concept and William Devane. Defiance yeah. has a third-level Death Wish knockoff and Jan Michael Vincent. Uh, so, yeah, that's enough about Defiance. If you end up digging up Defiance because of this podcast, let us know on Twitter. Now we're moving on to something that is <laughs> oh, yeah. truly bizarre. I will leave it to Drew to get into the maniacal insanity of Richard and Danny Elfman's Forbidden Zone. Just keep saying to yourself, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. It's only a movie that will have you living in the sixth dimension. Moving in the wrong direction. A new fantasy musical The Forbidden Zone. When I moved to Los Angeles, one of the first things that I wanted to do was I wanted to see Oingo Boingo live. I was already a Boingo fan. Uh, Danny Elfman was starting to become a big name as a composer. Boingo themselves, just as a band, I thought they were outrageous. And for years, I'd heard about their live stage shows. By the time they were Oingo Boingo, the stage shows were a lot less elaborate than they had originally been. The original performances, when they were the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo, that's what Forbidden Zone is. And it is a movie that was essentially an infomercial for what they did and what their band was like and what their music was like. They used to promote this VHS as like a feature-length rock video. Uh, Matthew Bright, who was the co-writer and who's uh, uh, part of the film as well, uh, Matthew Bright went on to the notoriously bizarre film Tiptoes. This film, you want to talk about a movie that kind of captures the the late 70s, early 80s art rock L.A. scene. This is it, man, because you've got some crazy stuff. Like You've got the Kipper Kids in here who were these wacko performance artists who wore this weird plasticky makeup and stuff. Uh, you got Susan Tyrell, who is 10 tons of freak show in a 50-pound bag. She's outrageously strange. This movie is bizarre. And, of course, the lead, one of the leads in the movie, is Hervé Villages, best yeah. known as Tattoo on Fantasy Island, and perhaps from Man with the Golden Gun. But this is a hell of a movie for him. And you want to talk about a guy who looks like he is having the time of his life. He turned around. He gave his salary back to the film so they could use it to help build sets. He showed up in painted sets. He was involved in the entire production. Like, he loved what this was. And I think there's a real sense watching this thing that it feels like really talented, really strange kids putting on a show in a barn. I, I like the music a lot. I don't know if I love the movie, but I do love the score. And that's kind of the point, right? It's more of just like a colorful vessel for the music. It feels like it lives in the same sort of corner of film fandom as some of the early John Waters stuff, but it's not gross the way Waters was. I would call it a close cousin to a John Waters film, definitely. Just at the beginning, the, the main character is a pimp, and there's a perpetually topless princess in this movie who is uh, running around. But it still somehow manages to feel kind of innocent and kind of more surreal and playful than grosser or uh, exploitative. You owe it to yourself to track it down. Try it. If it's uh, not your cup of tea, I get that, but try it. I bet you'll like the music. Our next film is, you got to describe this. When there's something that's really popular in a film, car racing. You know, everybody's making a car racing movie. 
And then after like six, seven, eight years, you've extinguished all the cliches and all the cool ideas. And now people are churning out car racing movies that are just terrible. It's kind of what happened with Irwin Allen throughout the 70s is he was the king of the disaster movie. He produced or wrote films such as Towering Inferno, The Poseidon Adventure. He did a lot of disaster movies, Flood for television. That was his thing. He was the guy who did the disaster movies. And, and his name was bigger than the movies in a lot of ways. It was yep. You just went to go see Irwin Allen. I absolutely love The Poseidon Adventure, and I have a fondness for The Towering Inferno. And I've seen everything with Irwin Allen's name on it. And 1980, the man hit a wall. <laughs> <laughs> he did another film called Meteor that came out in 80. And we'll get to that, I believe, a little later in the year. This one's called When Time Ran Out. It was as if they were throwing darts at a board and they went, oh, volcano. This thing's a powder keg. Well, I think that's a damned irresponsible conclusion on your part. Oh, well, then perhaps there's still time for a little passion in paradise. That's some kiss, passion that really sparks. But this sucker makes Mount St. Helens look like a kid's sparkler. irresponsible conclusion on your part you said that already paul newman jacqueline bissett william holden james franciscus alex karras pat marita excuse me but don't we have any other explosions thank you burgess meredith and hill street's veronica hamill they were all having a good time when time ran out. It's terrible. And it almost feels like your greatest hits of all of the kinds of disasters, because floods happen and other things happen. By the time this thing aired on TV, again, we're talking about TV cuts, they had changed the title and they were selling it as a comedy, like almost a parody of those movies. That's probably why they called it When Time Ran Out and not Volcano Crazy or Lava Field or whatever. The, the yeah. characters are all so generic. You know, all of the charm that we got from, like, Gene Hackman and Borgnine and Shelley Winters in, in Poseidon Adventure, all that's gone by now. It is literally just set up the stock characters, show the location, a shitload of boring character nonsense that we don't care about, and then stock footage of a volcano exploding, some really shitty effects. And it feels like a terrible episode of The Love Boat or Fantasy Island. This, yes. this is a movie where that formula really bottoms out. Earth's, but, Earth's Final Fury was the TV version. And they flat out sold it as a joke. Like, they had to make fun of it to get you to tune in. Friday. Why so plump? Had a tough week. It couldn't be any worse than what these stars are going through. Let's get the show on the road. Join Paul Newman and Jacqueline Bissett in a lover's paradise. This island's a death trap. That could be the hottest place on Earth. Oh, boy. William Holden, Veronica Hamill, and Barbara Carrera catch a wave in Earth's Final Fury. Friday. There's a DVD that came out at some point. I'm not sure when, but I, that's the last time I saw this thing. And it's a fairly trim 100 minutes. It pretty much flies by. There's a two and a half hour video cassette version of this movie. It is yeah. truly a punishment if you ever see that longer cut. I will always have a fondness in my heart for Irwin Allen. But he did at the end there. He produced some true turkeys between Meteor and when time ran out. Uh, you know, it's just like, that's enough. We're done with this formula. We don't need any more of your canned disasters. The most interesting footnote to this film, the check from this movie is what Paul Newman used to start the Newman's own salad dressing line. Really? It's the only reason it's the only reason he did it. He knew this was going to be awful and took this specifically because he had a business opportunity. He needed a little goose. He did this movie, turned that check around, and now Newman's Own is Newman's Own. So this is the beginning of that, if nothing else. We only have two movies left this month, but they're both very special in their own yes, way. Yes, they are. I would like you to uh, introduce our viewers to the American release of George Miller's original Max. He's a cop in a world where law and order have long been forgotten. When the gang killed his partner... Max got mad. When they attacked his family... Please, don't hurt my baby. Max got even. Mad Max, the maximum force of the future. Rated R. Oh, my God. Talk about a movie that hit like a bomb. 
there are very few films that have cast as long a shadow stylistically as Mad Max and specifically the Road Warrior, but Mad Max begins it. You know, George Miller has talked about the fact that it was really the whole end of the world post-apocalypse thing and the idea that the world was falling apart was a later idea in Mad Max. It was not the original conception of it. Right. In the original Mad Max, the world is just on the edge of the apocalypse that we would come to experience in 2, 3, and 4. Yeah, it's really starting to crumble here. And I, I find that choice they made really fascinating. What was revolutionary was the look of it and specifically how he shot the car stuff. The work that he did in this movie is so revolutionary and has been internalized in terms of how we look at car photography and chase photography and every blockbuster. Fast and the Furious couldn't exist without this film. And this was really the international flashpoint moment for Mel Gibson. Say what you will about Mel Gibson now, but Mel Gibson in 1980, the first time you saw him as Max, instant, no question, absolutely, that guy's a movie star. To me, thematically, what's interesting about Mad Max is that we were in an era where we had a lot of ultra-violent action films, and the movies would often spend a lot of time trying to justify how their heroes could be so brutal. For example, in Death Wish 2, you have to have these horrible, horrible violence in order for us to get behind Paul Kersey and go, yeah, yeah. But George Miller created a world where all normal morality was on its way out the door. So you can watch this hero wreak havoc on these people and not feel terrible because they are the harbingers of the world falling apart. It's not just a revenge story in which he wants revenge for his slain wife and child. It's that he wants revenge in a landscape where normal laws and normal revenge is just being turned on its head. Um, well, it's not even a revenge movie for the almost the first half. The first half of the movie is just him and his family trying to stay out of it. It takes a good 45, 50 minutes to set up the characters, and then once the stakes are raised, then they pull the rug out from under you, and it becomes very visceral and violent and cathartic in a way. That, that revenge is well-earned in this movie. This is why Max is mad. This is what drives him and breaks him and, and turns him into the character that we eventually met. Now, like many people, I saw The Road Warrior first. I was just about to ask you that. Did you see this one first? Because like you, I had the big, fat Warner Brothers clamshell of The Road Warrior. In America, for a long time, it was just called The Road Warrior. And I had probably seen it three or four times before I realized, oh, this is part two. And I remember distinctly as a kid thinking, nah, it's not that good. The other one's better. And to be honest, I still prefer The Road Warrior, but Mad Max is, is a little more mature. It's a little more dramatic, a little more emotional, or a lot more emotional heft than, than Road Warrior does. Now, for people who have only seen Fury Road or who have only seen Fury Road and Road Warrior, the bad guy in this first film is a, a character named the Toe Cutter, and he's the leader of a gang, and he is played by Hugh Keyes Byrne, who is the same actor who played Morton Joe in Fury Road. Yep. And it's really terrific to see Miller work with this guy at both ends of his career, because on the first film, he did a lot of what he did on Fury Road, which is he's a Shakespearean-trained actor, he's very method, and he really made the world come alive for the people around him. In the case of this film, it was the gang, and he and the gang would ride their motorcycles together. They actually got their motorcycles on one side of Australia, and George Miller had them, as a gang, drive their motorcycles to set. So they spent hundreds of miles on the road together with Hugh as the actual leader of the gang. And he really believes in that. And I think it's one of the reasons that from day one, Miller has been so good at world building is he's had actors in these movies, not just stuntmen, but actors who really helped him ground these worlds and make the relationships uh, feel real, even as the world is falling apart around them. Yeah, I like to pretend that uh, Immortan Joe is Toe Cutter's son. There's no evidence to it, but I like to pretend that they're related. Oh, now, so this last film, Scott, is uh, we're coming full, full circle for the episode because we opened with uh, talking about reissues. And this last one is a reissue. And as you mentioned, Disney really made the most of this as a market. So yeah. which one was it this month? It sounds cynical when you talk about re-releases. And even I said it earlier in that, you know, what's your overhead for a re-release? You've already made the film. You've already made your money. And now you're putting it out again. And it, it feeds into that whole, if you haven't seen an episode of your favorite TV show, it doesn't matter if it's a rerun. It's new to you. So I grew up with re-releases and I was grateful 
to get to see movies like Lady and the Tramp in the theaters. Because, you know, if it wasn't for re-releases, I wouldn't have seen Cinderella on a big screen. I would not have seen Sleeping Beauty or Jungle Book or uh, Lady and the Tramp. Oh, this is the night. It's a beautiful night. And we call it a bad. You know, yeah, re-releases are cynical. They also did a lot for movie geeks of our generation. I've seen them all, and I would put Lady and the Tramp in the top third of Disney classics. It is a consistently charming, funny, brilliantly animated film. Uh, how, where would you put Lady and the Tramp on the uh, on the scale of Disney classics, Drew? I'm a fan. I, I like it a lot. And one of the things that makes the theatrical experience essential for this, um, Disney really was... He was very aware of theatrical format and how things played in the theater. So when you saw something like Fantasia, and Fantasia was shot square and is just the center of the frame, uh, that is very intentional. He's not; it's not an accident, and it's not just in order to do an animated film. He was he was thinking about widescreen from day one and aware that you're basically animating twice the surface. There's a lot of other technical challenges. Getting something to stay consistent as you're panning across a scope 235 frame is very difficult. So it really wasn't until a certain point that he decided to try it. And the two films that were scoped that were, I, I think, beautiful, beautiful theatrical experiences simply to look at how he used the frame, uh, Lady and the Tramp and Sleeping Beauty. To see Lady and the Tramp in a theater is to have a totally different experience than kids had when they saw excerpts from it on television in the Disney television shows. Everything had been cut and cropped, and you didn't get a sense of how beautiful the use of frame was in it. Can you imagine someone having to crop Sleeping Beauty, which is arguably the most beautiful animated film ever made, or at least American? It's almost criminal what they had to do to some of these films for television, but this is definitely one of the Disney movies where it makes a huge difference to actually see it theatrical. I was just at that age where you're still okay with kid stuff, even though you want to watch more grown-up stuff. You're still half a kid, mostly a kid, so you're okay with it. We all go through that phase between like 13 and 18 where we want nothing to do with childish or family-oriented entertainment, uh, and you miss out on a lot. But man, when I was a kid... Even 13, 14, 15, I didn't care. I thought the Disney classics were masterpieces. I didn't think watching them made you babyish. My affection for the Disney classics has never waned. And uh, I think Lady and the Tramp is, it's adorable. It's really just a, a very, I mean, who hasn't seen Lady and the Tramp? You haven't seen it? Go get the Blu-ray. So, oh my God, we did an unbelievable amount of stuff this time. And that's what's really great about this show is we're going we're gonna to have a lot of ground to cover. Um, Why don't you uh, tease our listeners on uh, one or two movies that are coming in April of 1980? We've got Roger Moore not playing James Bond. We've got a Dario Gento movie that you could argue is one of his quasi-classics. Bill Murray playing Hunter Thompson. And finally, you have Tim Conway and Harvey Corman in a movie that was aimed squarely at fans of Young Frankenstein. Did they hit the target? We will find out next time on 80s All Over. <laughs> 